This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Politics without the soap opera. With unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Miniman standing at the ready to fight for our liberty anew to the one and only CR Podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house. Today, it is Wednesday, August 11th, and it really is that simple. It's a fight for liberty, a fight for freedom, freedom versus fascism. Nothing else really matters until this issue is resolved it is a problem both because of the malprescription that they are giving us to this virus, which is tyranny and terrible mental, physical, economic, collateral damage. But also, as we've been noting the theme of this week, the damage that there really is a virus, putting politics aside, likely created or at least facilitated by the very people maltreating it. And it needs to be treated. And yet, we have no treatment. We have tons of treatment, but nobody knows about it. So first off, just wanted to say that today, you go to constitutionaction.com. Constitutionaction.com, these are our ConAction Liberty Strike Force teams. But we created a special URL, constitutionaction.com forward slash COVID treatment. There you have Katie Jennings, one of our listeners from Massachusetts, put together a terrific resource, a treatment packet, take a look at it there. So definitely that is just a public service announcement because 90% of people, their doctors are pathetic and they tell them to go home and isolate and they give them absolutely nothing when 99% of hospitalizations could be avoided. And we're going to speak with a very special doctor today that will give us a real life example to illustrate what the entire country would have looked like if it would have modeled his clinic in California. So he's coming up a little bit later today. Our sponsor today, for people that have trouble with vision, we certainly see political vision being troubled by phony conservatives that buy into fake narratives, but you, you do have to see. Better Spectacles, they're now offering authentic German-engineered Rodenstock eyewear for the first time in the US. Rodenstock is the gold standard of eyewear with 500 patents. Ronald Reagan himself actually wore Rodenstock glasses. They're expert opticians specialized in difficult prescriptions, astigmatisms, and those who experience problems. Gospex lenses uses 7,000 points in the eye for their algorithms to generate the best lenses. More energy, no neck strain, the ability to see up to 40% better. Go to betterspectacles.com slash conservative to schedule a teleoptical appointment. You don't even have to leave your home and wear a mask. You get your prescription, and then they're offering my audience an introductory 61% off their ghost specs lenses. Again, visit betterspectacles.com slash conservative. Go now. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack before we get into our next guest. Um, but again, I just wanted to say that it's amazing the information out there that should be out there that's not being put out there. Just today, I had... A friend of mine 
who has a father that had COVID. You know, it wasn't a big deal for him. He was on the older side, but he was healthy, got through it. But there's this lingering cough for, for like six weeks, and it's not going away. And he says he's going to his doctor today, and I was like, look, good luck, but unless you have an unusual doctor, he's going to be clueless. I texted Dr. Pierre Corey, and he's a pulmonologist, cough, actually, he's, he is literally a cough expert. And he's like, oh, yeah, obviously, ivermectin, three to five days of um, um, opiate-based cough syrup. I do a trial of prednisone, and it suppresses the cough and allows the larynx and pharynx to heal. And sometimes that, it's, it, that is exactly what's needed because everything is just so inflamed and coughing then begets coughing. It's a vicious cycle. And boom, like, hey, you know, well, why is this secret being kept from all of us? So he's got the answers. I don't know how many pulmonologists there are in the country. You could probably Google it. But how come they haven't gotten together to deal with this? But shut up and get the jab. No questions. That's it. So we have a bunch of suppression of data and research going on. Everything you hear is a lie. This is hilarious. Hilarious what's going on. Duke University put out this study about masking working in schools. Okay? They said, we see masking works. David Zweig, I give him credit. He is, um, he writes stuff for New York Times, Atlantic, New York Mag, but he's actually a good reporter. And he took a look at this and was like, wait a minute. There's one problem. Um, how could they make a claim on that mass work when there was no control? In order to claim you, you have an effect, right? You have to compare one group to another. That one did the mask, one didn't. And both groups wore the mask. <laughs> so where's your control? You can't make this stuff up. Instead, the authors relied <coughs> when when Zweig asked him about this. The author said, well, they relied on an Israeli study saying that masks work in schools. Except, you know, number one, you can't use another study as evidence for a claim that you're trying to find in this study. And number two, the Israeli study was for grade 7 to 12. Windows were closed and all schools were exempt from masks. If anything, the fact that there was only one outbreak suggests the lack of effectiveness of masks. So that's that's the thing, you know, and he cited more stuff like this opinion piece where they cite some districts that have mass mandates and low transmission as evidence. And then they cherry picked areas. There's plenty that didn't have it. This is the game they're playing with the vaccine, too. You can't trust a word that they say. So I I've put out several articles on natural immunity. Okay, that natural immunity is much better, broader, longer lasting. It's obvious, incontrovertible science than anything behind vaccines. And that's typical vaccines, certainly a very unique, um, weak, uh, what, do you, what do you call it, um, spike protein vaccine, which only recognizes one part of the virus. And it's already proven not to work, which is why they're pushing the mask. You can't have it both ways. It's like, shut up. This is more effective than natural immunity. Oh, it doesn't stop it. But it protects against serious infection. 0% effective against uh, transmission, but 100% effective against serious illness. Long term, long term. Yeah, right. Have you ever seen anything like that in your life? But anyway, so someone sent to me that they put my article on Facebook 
And Facebook put a fact check up and said, not true. And it was hilarious. They never debunked any point made in the thing. They actually agreed to it, that the immunity is very robust. But they said, this is misleading and lacks context because, you know, it's dangerous to get the virus. Whereas the vaccine is not dangerous. You get the immunity for free. Here you have to suffer the virus to get the immunity. Now, putting aside, they're ignoring the suffering from the vaccine. But you idiot. I wasn't suggesting this as a goal of people prospectively. It was retrospectively. 50% of people in most given areas already have gotten it before we have to make a determination on the vaccine. So you have the immunity. You went through it, whether painfully or not, whether mildly or not. But you got it already. And you now have a question whether you should assume the risk of a vaccine. And they don't dispute that. They're like, it's painful to go through it. This is the game they sometimes play. They, they, they take a hyper-literalist Amelia Bedelia look. But, but getting the thing is, is dangerous. You schmucks, they already got it. And they know that too. But this is the game that they play. So I just wanted to give you a glimpse into what's going on. Another big important thing, obviously, is the rebellion. We're seeing beautiful displays of grassroots insurrections. I'll use their term, call it an insurrection. <clears throat> People rising up at school board meetings. It's truly beautiful. Everyone's pointing out, you know, this fifth grade teacher, Laura Lean, in Loudoun County, Virginia, gave a very emotional two-minute speech at the Loudoun County School Board announcing she was resigning on the spot because of... This was mainly critical race theory, but we're seeing it both on that issue and the mask issue. And, folks, this is where it is. It's a fight of freedom versus fascism. But where is everyone? You have Ron DeSantis up there single-handedly fighting this. I think you have, you know, Governor McMaster in South Carolina has held the line pretty well, too. Um, and he pointed out today, $42 billion spent by NIH never spent a single dime on studying the harms on kids from masking before mandating it. Where are the other Republicans? They're either on the other side of the issue, they're on the fascism side, or they're, they're in the witness protection program. But you see, when you have a modicum of rebellion, it makes a difference. We all expected that Southwest but particularly Delta and American Airlines, which are very woke, would follow the lead of United and mandate that all of their employees have to get, get the shot. But instead, they announced they're not because the pilots, the mechanics, the stewardesses fought back. And they won. They won. You can't just sit and take this. Even in the military, it's terrible what's going on in the military, but General Berger, who is the he he is the head of the Marine Division, there'll be no mandatory vaccinations for my Marines. And he lashed out against um against what we're seeing from, from DOD. And again, I've always said it the most local unit of government, whether it's a unit of government like local government, or whether it's your association, a union, your business, your company. If you want to protect your people and you're all united, there's very little what the higher-ups could do to force you. And, and again, Ron DeSantis is finding that when the shoe's on the other foot, he's trying to push freedom, and some of the locals are pushing tyranny, and it's very difficult to fight back, but there are tools. 
And he's starting to use them, cutting off salaries. And by the way, this is being threatened. I got an email from Nick in uh, downstate in Illinois, a red area in a blue count in a blue state. And, you know, they're getting up there and they're coming to the school board meetings and they're trying to get rid of the mandates. And the state's threatening them the other way. But the common denominator is typically there is only one side on the playing field. You get on the playing field and you poke the bear a little bit, you'll see how weak they are. Now, while you arm yourself with intellectual information from this show, you need to make sure you're armed against all the criminals being let out and the, and the record crime. Everyone is into guns and ammo, but few people focus on getting the right holster. I have right on me now my left-handed, outside-the-waistband, We the People holster for my H&K VP9. Um, I wear around my house. Starting at just 40 bucks. We the People holsters are custom-molded to fit your firearm exactly. They're American-made. They have cool designs. They also have very important EDC tactical gun belts. You can't just put a, a holster on a, on a you know, flimsy uh, dress belt. You have to have a solid gun belt, so they give you both. Um, that is the key to having a proper and safe, not just holstering of it, but a proper and safe draw from the holster if you are to need if you were to need to, to shoot it. Every holster gun belt comes with a lifetime guarantee. Again, we the peoplehosters.com slash CR. Get an additional 10 bucks off with offer code CR. We the peoplehosters.com slash CR. Now, folks, I heard I, I don't know if I mentioned this yesterday, but in Arkansas, the Senate Judiciary Committee canceled a meeting on a bill that would have created a right to privacy in, in, in the private sector against employers asking whether you're vaccinated. So again, we are seeing very few red states have this protection. We need a rebellion. We are way past the point in time when I thought people would rise up. Now, meanwhile, again, I feel bad I haven't had time to get to this, but yesterday, 20 Senate Republicans, I believe or 19, voted for the massive infrastructure bill. This will is the Obamacare of transportation. It will. It's not just the inflation and the spending and the debt. That's, that's not even the biggest problem. It's the policies that Washington will control transportation, which you know that is the lifeblood of freedom in America. Um, they're going to screw with cars. They're going to screw with um, taxing us on miles per, per gallon eventually. They have a pilot program in there. There's so many problems with this bill. This is, you know, it's funny. Charlie Cook, he's one of the big, um, he's one of the big, what do you call them, uh, political scientists or whatever. And he actually noted, he said, what we're seeing from the Biden administration is what they would have expected to come from Bernie Sanders had he won. And we're like, yeah, no kidding. We could have warned you that. But you would think if the Democrats are so radical, the Republicans, who to begin with are usually better in when they're out of power, would oppose everything. And yet the Republicans, including leadership members, voted to secure his legacy item for him. Truly, truly unbelievable. Truly unbelievable. I can't believe it. So this is where we are now. We're not controlling things even in, in red areas. 
Norman, Oklahoma, I'm sure many of you saw that school board member got up there and said, a child not wearing a mask is a murderer. Now, I get it. Norman is kind of where the college is outside of Oklahoma City, but still, this should not be happening in Oklahoma. We got to get emergency sessions of state legislatures to get on board. Um, Right now, the governor of Florida is trying to handle it alone. My understanding is if they continue to resist, he will call the legislature in. Um, And that is something that needs to be done everywhere. We can't wait till January. Although you will have a special session coming up in about a month, four to six weeks from now in most states to handle redistricting. That is really when we have to deal with this. Although, again, we don't have four to six weeks. I can't tell you how many friends of mine, certainly in healthcare, but really all settings, faced with the crushing decision of what to do. So now I, you know, people are asking me advice. Daniel, if I'm forced to get it, which shot should I get? And I don't yet have an answer to that, although I think J&J at least is only one shot. So it's less of a, you know, a chance of having a problem. I'd probably say J&J. But... You know, they're asking for ivermectin prophylaxis to deal with it, and and that's certainly certainly an option. But these are life altering decisions on a human body without any science, and yet not a single injunction. I want you to think about this. All the time since the beginning of the show, those of you who have heard me for for you know six or so years talking about how illegal aliens and criminals and people seeking welfare and whatever they want, they get an injunction on on anything they want within 24 hours. And here you have a life-altering policy, and we have nowhere to turn in the courts. And yet, not only that, the courts are siding with localities that want to force it on you, meaning if a governor says you can't force it, they'll get an injunction on his policy, the opposite. We're finding that, I'm forgetting if it was Austin or Houston, got an injunction in Texas to disobey the governor's mandate, uh, policy, and mandate on schools, uh, you know, masks. And the governor is just rolling over. Again, Don Huffines is running against him. This is why... It's so important. This is even with a primary challenge. He's moved to the right, but not that much to the right, which should give you a glimpse to where he'll head if he were to win the primary. Williamson County, Tennessee. Okay? This was notorious in many respects in certain measures. For a while, it was considered like the most Republican county in America. Not, not so much that, meaning you have tiny counties that are conservative. But this was a big suburban county. It wasn't like a rural, just a rural area. It had a lot of people in it and was very Republican. Very prominent Republican county, Williamson County, outside of Nashville. Um, like Murfreesboro. And they voted 5-2 to two to mandate masks. So this is happening. We thought we were done with it even in the blue states. Yet in a number of areas in red states... Again, this is not Davidson County. This is Williamson County. Much, much more conservative. They're succeeding. There is so much opportunity. Again, I need leaders in Tennessee to form our strike force teams. Bunch of states. 
We have all the people ready to go. We have the agenda ready to go. We have the strategy ready to go. I need coordinators and leaders. If you're not willing to do it alone, but you're willing to coordinate all the names, 40, 50 in your state and divide into teams with two, three, four other people, give me your name, dhorowitz at blazemedia.com. You could sign up at the ConAction. Again, that's constitutionaction.com. We have a lot of work cut out for ourselves, a lot of work to do. But I do want to get to our guest. And today's guest is sponsored by constitutioncoach.com. Speaking of organizing our ConAction teams together, one of the ways we do this is we go out on our little retreat together at Front Sight Nevada for Constitution Coaches, Constitution and Defensive Handgun Training. This is the best defensive handgun training you're ever going to get. Those of you who carry a weapon, as you should, you do need training. Uh, we study the Constitution at night. During the day, we have the best instructors from Front Sight out there in the Pahrump Desert. Uh, all sponsored by Rick Green and Patriot Academy. Go to constitutioncoach.com to find out more details. It's 90% off the typical training. It's a very expensive course, but they turn a $2,000 course into 150 bucks. You just have to pay for your ammo and accommodations, and then you get to meet me. Uh, I'm going to be out at the October 31st one. Look, it's coming around the corner. It's almost the fall. It will be terrific weather, not too hot, not too cold there in the desert. Freedom, Guns, Constitution, CR Podcast, doesn't get better than that. Really expect to see you guys there. Now, folks, as I introduce our next guest, I just wanted to tell you I'm seeing all these stories everywhere that nearly 100% of people in the hospitals are critically ill in the ICUs, they're unvaccinated. And obviously, we know that's not true because as time goes on, we're seeing even in America, which is behind Israel, in the waning uh, vaccination curve, we're seeing in Oklahoma it's 24%. Miami, now they admit it's 20%. So it's funny how that, that keeps uh, changing. But what I like to say is nearly 100% of people in a hospital today didn't get early treatment and took CDC's advice to stay home for a week or however long and do nothing about it. When do we ever do this? Do we do this with pneumonia and bronchitis and other things and just say, hey, Outpatient treatment is canceled. It has to be done in the hospital. We want to alleviate the burden on the hospital, but then we say there's no treatment outside of the hospital, and then even in the hospital, it's remdesivir or bust. So how come we're not seeing those headlines? How do I know what America would have looked like had we been doing early treatment? You know why? Because we have case studies. His name is Dr. Brian Tyson. Together with Dr. George Fareed, he owns and operates All Valley Urgent Care in El Centro, California, that's near the uh, international border. He has treated thousands of COVID patients. He's developed a protocol, and we're going to get some tips today how to deal with COVID and understand what the government is not telling us. Dr. Tyson, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. All righty, so let's just get straight to it. Um, could you describe just the timeline, how you got into this early treatment regimen and just talk about some of the success you've seen uh, relative to others that aren't using your protocols? And are you being um, regarded as a hero in California or a villain? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, 
um, you, 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 you're taught in med school and you're taught in, in residency and then even in practice, uh, when something comes around that you're not familiar with, the first thing you do is you go and you, you start looking up information. Um, you know, I, I've been saying this from the very beginning, SARS COVID, uh, two is called SARS COVID two for a reason, because the first time it came around, it was SARS COVID one. Uh, mm-hmm. we saw it in 2003. Um, it was a pretty bad outbreak at that point. The fatality rate, I want to say, was close to 10%. <clears throat> so there was a lot of research that happened as a result of SARS-CoV-1. And one of the biggest things that has been overlooked is the early treatment. <clears throat> and the early treatment with hydroxychloroquine. Um, the NIH published a study in 2005 which said chloroquine is a potent inhibitor of sars coronavirus. That's where the whole hydroxychloroquine came from. Um, we know that hydroxychloroquine is a zinc ionophore, meaning that it helps bring zinc into the cell. And if you've ever been around in, in, in America during the influenza seasons, uh, the first thing everybody tells you to do is get vitamin C and zinc, right? What is Zycam? What is all of this airborne? What, is, what are all of the over-the-counter uh, cough and cold treatments? What do they all have in them? Vitamin C and zinc. Why? Because zinc inhibits RNA polymerase. RNA polymerase is what viruses use to replicate, right? So logic says if I can prevent a virus from replicating by using zinc, then I'm going to have a better ability to fight the virus with my own immune system while my body makes antibodies. Okay, so that's the viral load that everybody talks about. How high is the viral load and how high and how fast does it replicate determines how fast you're going to get sick or not get sick. So if I can use medications to prevent the viral replication, my immune system has a better chance, right? If, if you're fighting an, a, a, a war and the, the, the troops on each side are equal, you have, a, you have a, a, a fighting chance. If one keeps multiplying while the other one's not, then you're going to get over, overrun and you're going to you know, have, have a problem with the virus. So we started using hydroxychloroquine with zinc. We also um, know that from previous pandemics, if you even go back to the Spanish flu uh, of uh, 1918, um, the number one cause of death was secondary bacterial pneumonia. So 80% of those patients died from secondary bacterial pneumonia, meaning they got the flu got sick and then died of a bacterial infection. So that's where the use of antibiotics come in. Can we prevent a secondary pneumonia? So when I started seeing patients positive for COVID, we started seeing, you know, uh, pneumonia-like pictures on x-ray. So we used Zithromax or doxycycline, which we would normally use to treat uh, pneumonia or atypical pneumonia. Uh, in patients, and that's basically how the protocol started. Um, it wasn't just by chance. It wasn't just, hey, let's throw some medications together. Um, we actually did our research, and we started looking at it. Now, I took the approach of seeing patients face-to-face. You know, um, was it risky? Absolutely. Was it the, the right thing to do? I think as physicians, that's what we need to do. We always need to see what's going on. I didn't take the telemedicine approach. We didn't take the, oh, well, here's some, uh, you know, cough syrup and, and, and off you go. You know, the CDC says there's no outpatient recommendations. The NIH was saying we don't recommend outpatient treatment. And 
I, I just, I, you know, I, I, I talked to George Fareed about this, and we looked at each other and said, since when in the history of medicine <laughs> have we ever said we're not going to treat somebody until they get so bad they need to be put in the hospital? It just makes <laughs> absolutely no sense. And, and, you know? and the thing is, Dr. Tyson, I understand, like, at the beginning, this was kind of treated like Ebola. Okay, there's five cases. There's ten cases. Right. Okay, it's a yeah. very rare new thing. Okay, we're not touching it. But at some point, a very, 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 very long time ago, and certainly by now, it became abundantly clear that this is going to spread pretty much to everyone. And yet still, on the day we are talking 17 months later, I get it from all my listeners, 90% of people, they they're... PCP to this day will they, they, you could see the um, inflammatory response, the cytokine storm coming a mile away. You know what this does, and they won't even give them um, an antibiotic, much less the hydroxy or ivermectin, and you know all the other things. They won't even tell them to take zinc. They won't tell them to take anything. Yeah, and that's the biggest malpractice going on in 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 this country. It's malpractice. I'm sorry, but it is. And, and people who reached out to their primary care doctors to get treatment and got none should all be seeking legal advice because 85% of everyone who passed away from this virus could have been treated. I repeat, 85% could have been treated and could have been saved. Um, you know, Harvey Rich has been saying the same thing. Peter McCullough has been saying the same thing. I've been saying the same thing. We've treated now over 6,000 patients. And if they got treatment before day seven, guess how many survived? All of them. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're telling me here you didn't lose a single patient? That started treatment before day seven. Not one. That started treatment before day seven. How many avoided the ER? Um, we had uh, a few patients go to the ER, um, but most of them intentional because that's where Regeneron is being given out. It's uh, only being given okay. out in the hospital. So we would send them to the ER to get Regeneron and then we would bring them back and then we would start them on home treatment. We had but in, one but in terms of like, yep. Yeah. We had one hospitalization in the under seven uh, day group and we had um, three or four hospitalizations in the over day seven group. Um, we had three patients die who presented after day seven. Two of them died the same day that they showed up to the ER um, and didn't get treatment. And we had one one uh, patient who had a prolonged hospitalization, um, and I want to say died about eight weeks after hospitalization. And again, that was from the after day seven cohort? That was after the day seven, yeah. yeah. So you're basically painting a picture, and, and none of us have answers because – the, the the foundation starts from this issue. This is the antecedent to COVID policy. When we discuss the risk benefit analysis of the vaccine, which I hope you know we have a couple minutes to get into later, it all starts from an assumption that there's nothing else we can do. But what you're painting a picture of from your own clinic of treating over six thousand people for over a year is that if you get it early, there's numerous things you can do, and you have your published protocols online. Uh, we have put out our um, you know, one of our listeners put together all the protocols from you, McCullough, the FLCCC, just to give people a sense of what to ask their doctors about. And we certainly have that there. Again, you guys can go to constitutionaction.com um, forward slash COVID treatment. 
But what you're telling me is what the rest of the country would look like is basically you catch it early, there'd be almost no death. And what I find very jarring is this. I understand in March of last year, this was very confounding to some people because, you know, a lot of people would get it. They would only get the viral stage. Okay, so it's a virus, it's a cold, it's a flu. What's the big deal? But then some people would get that vicious pulmonary inflammation, and then it's like, oh my gosh, where did this come from? But after a short period of time, when we see that running play up the center of the field, we know where it's coming, and we're willing to test like a bunch of hyenas. We have never tested like anything in all of our history. We've overturned at great expense everything in civilization. Why don't we reap the one benefit of that, which is early detection? You know, typically I would have told people, yeah, you know, for you it might be a cold or uh, a flu. But, but Dr. Tyson, isn't it correct that at this point where you have the very transmissible Delta variant going everywhere, that if you're in the South right now and you're an adult and you start getting a sore throat, a cough, or anything, shouldn't you stuff that in the hole right away? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, we, we can, we can treat inflammation. We can treat blood clot formation. We can treat hypoxemia. We can treat a lot of things that the NIH and everybody has been mis, you know, uh, diagnosing and, and, and just, just mistreating this whole time. We, we do this with asthma. So asthma came, comes around every season. We know how to treat it. We use nebulized uh, albuterol. We use nebulized steroids. We use oral steroids. We use oxygen when needed, right? Well, there's three drugs that you can also treat COVID with. You can, we use inhaled budesonide, and we use oxygen. And when you use those in combination, you can keep patients out of the hospital, which is what we want to do allow the inflammatory process to get better, um, and, and these patients recover. Singular is another drug that we use in asthma. That's a leukotriene inhibitor. We use that in asthma mm-hmm. a lot. We use it at night. And guess what? COVID patients with inflammatory pros- uh, problems in their lungs are responding to that medication as well. So it's not just you know the, the, the hydroxychloroquine or the ivermectin. There's lots of other drugs. Using aspirin a day can prevent blood clots. Using apixaban in those who are at high risk for DVTs, uh, deep vein thrombosis. Using that medication helps prevent the, the pulmonary embolisms and, the, and the, the blood clots that we're seeing in some of these patients. So we stopped treating patients this last year. And that's the biggest problem that I've seen is, you know, this, oh, well, I don't treat COVID. Oh, I can't have COVID in my office. Oh, we only do telemedicine visits. Oh, well, we only, we only talk to patients on the phone now. I, I, I don't know where medicine went wrong this year, but that seems to be the biggest problem is we stopped looking at our patients and treating the, the disease processes that we're seeing in front of us. Wow, that, that, that's very powerful. So again, your point is it's not about any one drug it, you know, there's multiple options. The earlier you get in the process, we know we have anti-inflammatories, we have antiviral, we have anticoagulants, and certainly antibiotics. Um, but but people are offered none of it. Um, what what? This is a very unsettling reality that I think a lot of us are facing, and we're wondering how deep the rot goes in the medical profession. 
what what do you what has gone wrong with primary care? Um, what is up with these doctors? Is it that they just kind of treat from a website and they don't study things both academically and clinically and study mechanisms of action? Or is it that they're scared of liability because NIH doesn't recommend anything? Where is this coming from? So I think it's it's a combination of of all of what you just said. I you know. We're taught, we're taught in residency to use evidence-based medicine. We're taught to follow guidelines. Everybody's taught to follow guidelines. Well, these are what the guidelines say. This is what the studies say. This is what we're supposed to do. This is what the CDC says. This is what the WHO says. So we've given authority too much to the government agencies to tell us what to do uh, in times of need. And we're afraid that if we don't go and we're taught as well, if you go outside those guidelines, then you're opening yourself up to legal liability. Well, you didn't follow the CDC recommendations. Oh, you didn't follow the NIH recommendations. You didn't follow the evidence-based medicine. Therefore, if something goes wrong, we can find you at fault. So that's number one. Number two, fear drove a lot of this. In the early stages of this disease, everybody thought if you got it, you're gonna die. That was the, the picture being painted, including physicians. We saw physicians in China who were treating the disease who, who got sick and they, and they ended up in the hospital and they died. Doctors don't want to lose their lives. Nobody wants to lose their lives. So they didn't want to be on the forefront of what could happen. Instead, they, they, they weighed back and had the excuse that the, the CDC and the NIH gave them that says, oh, there's no outpatient treatment. We don't recommend anything. Go home, and if you get really sick, then end up going to the hospital. And, and that basically eliminated primary care. You couldn't wow. go to the office for any reason at that point. All of these offices got closed. All, everybody shut down their practice, and they started going to, if you need your medication refills, we'll do it by phone. And they stopped seeing patients. It wasn't until recent, you know, that the offices started to open back up and now they're still, they're, they're so comfortable with the telemedicine platforms and the phone con consults, they don't want to go back to seeing patients uh, in person, especially now with another wave of COVID coming around. Um, and, and that's been the, the, the hardest thing to, to wrap my head around. You know, like I said, we've never closed down this whole time. You know, I've, I've been sick with COVID. I've had staff members sick with COVID. But what's interesting is it wasn't all at once. Nobody got sick all at once. It was one person here, one person there. Um, you know, we, we, we put them off. They got treatment and everybody got better. I got better. My wife got better. My kids got better. My staff got better. My nurse practitioners got better. Um, and over the 18 months, I'd, I'd say I think we have one person left in the office who has not had COVID. Now, you're pretty close to the international border. Is that correct? That's correct. So have you treated very sick people from across the border, and have you also achieved the same results with them as well? Yeah, we, we've, we've treated extremely sick people. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be um, showing a, an interview on One American News that we're going to be taping tomorrow. Um, you know, with, with a patient who presented with a pulse ox of 84%. 84% is hospitalization. Um, mm. this, this patient certainly should have been in the hospital. Uh, we're in a high diabetic, high morbid obesity uh, belt. Um, our uh, 
mortality rate out here was like three, 3.6% of all COVID infections uh, that, yep. that were positive and ended up uh, passing away. So when you compare that to the rest of the country, it's about three times the normal. Um, yep. so yeah, I, I did a really report good. on that last year. You look at the border yeah. counties. The border counties have a very high death rate. Um, and it was jarring because typically you'd see that in the big urban areas, but but in, in the border you would see it even in the rural areas, which kind of flew in the face of just the basic epidemiology. So what I want to bring out here is just putting the politics of the border aside, just in terms of the treatment, you're telling me that that first of all you had success even later on, but what I want to make clear is it seems like a lot of people, they get some of these prophylaxis or early treatments they get very, very better very quickly. It works very well. Are you telling me you found that success even with people with the heart disease and the diabetes? Yes, that's correct. That's correct. So so in other words, if you're a high-risk person, because this is what really kills me. I have a friend of mine. He's 65. He's very bad diabetes and heart disease. And he got both shots, and he's sitting at home, and he is terrified. He's terrified, and he has no peace of mind, no prophylaxis, nothing sitting on his shelf. And I said, look, you know, I have a lot of doctors I've now gotten a hold of. They could talk to you, you know, give you stuff. Um, you know, these people, do you believe, like, let's say you're in the South now. You're in an area where it's really circulating, and you feel you're, you're vulnerable. Do you believe it's worth it to have a prophylaxis regimen? Absolutely, 100%. I mean, there's... There's, there's no substitute for a healthy immune system, number one. You know, so, so get your immune system as healthy as possible. And there's, there's lots of nutraceuticals that are proven to be effective. Um, you know, number one, vitamin C, uh, zinc, definitely. Um, N-acetylcysteine or NAC. Um, and I know that that's kind of been, you know, whether you can get it or not, you can still get it online, I believe. Yes. Um, it's 600 milligrams daily. Um, quercetin, um, which is also a zinc ionophore. Uh, vitamin can, can you D3. just briefly, D- D3, can you briefly just describe just some of the differences or, you know, between quercetin and, and, and NAC? Well, quercetin is, is more like a, it's, it's kind of like a, a hydroxychloroquine. Um, it, it helps zinc enter the cell. Um, and, and that's where your immune system uses uh, the zinc to inhibit the uh, ion to inhibit the RNA polymer, polymerase that causes viral replication. Um, where you know N-acetylcysteine it, it helps uh, in, in more in the lungs. We use it a lot with uh, asthmatics uh, and helps with inflammation. Um, and it's, it's also a potent, uh, inhibitor of, uh, viral illness. So you're saying that's certainly an easy over the counter thing that if someone thinks they got COVID or were exposed to COVID to start on, on NAC, I would, I would, I would take these, I would take these medications every day, knowing that you're going to be exposed to COVID out in the environment to which we live. There's, wow. there's, there's no doubt in my mind, everybody's going to be exposed to COVID. Okay. Let's go through, you know, just the physics of COVID. It is a 0.1 micron virus, 0.1 micron. <laughs> I don't care what mask you're using. I don't care how socially distanced you are. If you go outside into any store around anybody, 
you're going to be exposed to the virus, period. It's, it's, it's just what it is. There's, yeah. it's, it's, it's out there. there. There's just no going around it. Now, the question is, is what is your immune system going to do when it's exposed to it? Is it healthy? Is it going to fight it? Or is it not? That's the question. And if you look at your high-risk groups, morbid obesity, diabetes, hypertension, those are your, those are your high at-risk groups. Well, then protect yourself if you're in that group. Get your immune system high. Start losing weight. Exercise a little bit. Okay? Being, being ready to, you know, run the marathon by training, you're going to do better in the marathon. Right? Mm. If, you wait, if you wait till the, the, the day of the race and then try to get healthy, you're not, you're not going to do so well during the race. Okay? That's, that's, just, that's just fact. So, so, you know, obviously they'll make fun out of vitamin D and things like this, but the reality is, you know, we have ivermectin, hydroxy, all these other things to, to deal with it if you got it, but no one's saying, yeah, you're going to be healed that you immediately take vitamin D, but I think the point you're trying to make is that we've had 17 months that we've known about this, and, you know, it takes a couple months to bulk up your vitamin D levels. I'm not familiar with C and zinc, like the numbers, but I, I know the scale for D. Isn't it true that there's a huge difference between if you're hit with the virus at a level of 1520 versus let's say 4045. Absolutely. I mean, that, that was one of the first things that came out that they noticed. Those who did poorly were, were those who had low vitamin D levels. So again, if, if I see this is what's going on, this is the trend. Well, vitamin D is something we can solve the problem. Well, let's solve the vitamin D problem then. Let's give people, let's put, tell people to start taking vitamin D and see what happens. You know, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not illogical to, to look at those things and, and, and try to make some changes. You know, we've had 18 months. If everybody will have lost 20 pounds in 18 months, where else would we be? Well, you instead know? they gained uh, 30, 40 pounds. <laughs> right. And, and that, that's, that's one of the failures of the public health system. So public health, instead of telling people to go outside and exercise, told people to stay at home and quarantine. Well, they got fatter and they gained weight and they made them more at risk, especially kids and young adults. I think, you know, that's where nobody wants to talk about and nobody wants to take responsibility for that. Why are we seeing a a large outbreak in the the kids and in adolescents? Okay. I've been telling people from day one, the kids never should have left school, never should have left school. Why? Because they would have been the ones to get the infection when it was at the beginning. They showed virtually zero risk for uh, morbidity and had a zero risk for mortality if they were healthy. They would have had the uh, herd immunity response and protected the communities from the spread had they left the kids in school. Instead, now they're the ones dealing with the variant, and the variant is causing, quote, problems in their age group, which is, which is counterintuitive to what they should have done from the very beginning. And, and, and obviously we're seeing other things like RSV prop up and, and young kids mm-hmm. have a problem with it because they didn't get it when they were one years old or so. And, well, our, um, yeah, and RSV, out, RSV yeah. is a problem every year. Rhinovirus is a problem, and, and it's, it's a huge problem right now. Um, there's a huge rhinovirus outbreak, and that, that's also causing pulmonary issues. So now you start mixing infections, and you're going to have more problems when you're, 
infected with more than, than one virus. Um, when you, when COVID first hit in the March in uh, April section, we still had influenza around. And if you look at the early CDC reports, the first 88,000 of uh, the two first 200,000 that died, quote, died of COVID also died because they listed influenza uh, A or B as part of their uh, uh, diagnosis on their death certificates. So, yes, when you start combining respiratory infections, your outcomes are going to be worse. It's not that it's, you know, one versus the other, but now you're having to fight two different diseases at the same time. And if influenza comes back around this year on top of all of this, well, you're going to have even more problems. Um, it's not going anywhere, okay? This virus is not going anywhere right now uh, until everybody's, you know, basically been infected and, and everybody develops a natural immunity. And hopefully it'll stop mutating enough to basically eliminate that part of the virus. Um, if not, it becomes endemic, which... You know, we have seven other different uh, coronaviruses that are endemic every year, and we're also seeing those viruses right now. Now, just to transpose in the final few minutes here, almost out of time, into the vaccine, so the other side will say, no, there, there's another solution. Um, you just make sure every human being is vaccinated, and uh, we're good to go, and that way they don't have to suffer getting the virus um, and, and take that risk. Um you're an urgent care clinic. What are you seeing on the front line in terms of people affected by the vaccine itself? Do you believe that the VERS reporting of, you know, adverse incidents from the the vaccines, do you believe that it's being underreported? Um, it's definitely being underreported. Um, we've seen we've seen multiple vaccine reactions. Um, I haven't seen any severe enough to end up in the hospital, but I have seen uh, kids with pericarditis. I've seen uh, one myocarditis. We've seen a couple of ARDS uh, patients, which is acute respiratory distress syndrome, um, with with horrible uh, changes on their chest X-rays. Um, we're seeing a lot of breakthrough infections right now. Our breakthrough infection rate is probably 30, maybe 40 percent of all of our positives coming through with wow. COVID. Um, so, you know, I, you know, I, I caution people and, and I, and I ask the same question. If, if this, if the vaccine was a hundred percent effective, I would say absolutely get it. But the reality is, is it's not just like the, the influenza vaccine. You're supposed to get an influenza vaccine every year. Okay. Well, if it worked, why do you need to get an influenza vaccine every year? Okay. Yes. Can it make your symptoms less? Yep. Probably. Um, will this make your symptoms less? Well, maybe. We don't know. Um, it's a different vaccine. We don't know the, the short-term or even the long-term studies. And I think that that's where a lot of people are having the problem with um, is there's just no data on it. It's still not FDA approved. Um, it hasn't been fully evaluated by the FDA. And it says that on their uh, emergency use authorization. But Patients are still getting sick on the virus or with the vaccine, and they're still spreading it, having the vaccine, and it's giving people a false sense of security. Um, they also don't believe that they can get the virus, so they wait longer mm. with symptoms and don't seek treatment and do end up spreading it to other people because 
they believe, oh, well, it just, it has to be something else. I've been vaccinated. It has to be something else, you know? And, and I think that that's also problematic. Um, I think vaccines work in conjunction with treatment. During the pandemic, the best thing you can do is develop a treatment to get through the pandemic, and then you develop your vaccines to prevent it from coming back. That's, that's been the standard yep. and the gold standard of medicine since the, since the beginning of time. What people don't understand is if you put a lot of pressure on the vaccine itself to mutate, okay, i.e. with like, like this, this vaccine is particular for this, this vaccine only gives you antibodies to the spike protein not the entire virus, okay? So we're putting a lot of pressure for the virus to mutate the spike protein because if the virus can mutate the spike protein, guess what? It survives. Well, that's where the variants are coming from. It's the same concept that we use with antibiotic resistance. If I use the wrong antibiotic on a bacteria, that bacteria can then develop resistance to that antibiotic Mm. and it becomes a superbug, okay? Then we try using something else, then we try using something else. And the more exposure to those antibiotics that bacteria gets, the stronger it gets. Well, it's no different with viruses. If I put all of the pressure on the spike protein, all the viruses as well, if I change this, I survive. And, and that's what's happening. That's what the vaccines are doing. It's putting a high pressure to change the spike protein. And that's why it's now evading immunity. And that's why the same thing with influenza and all of these other uh, viral um, RNA viruses is the the ability for the virus to change is a lot higher than the DNA virus, which we can, you know, eliminate like uh, smallpox or uh, polio, um, you know, with, with one vaccine. They need to look at the vaccine itself. It's not the same uh, vaccine that we get as kids. It's, it's different. So what you're what you're saying is there's two things that are unprecedented. It's a very narrow spectrum immunity, and we see it wanes, but it it only it only addresses the spike protein, and the circumstances through which we're vaccinating is in the middle of a very prolific circulation of a pandemic. So it's kind of the worst of all. If you're going to take the unprecedented step of vaccinating during a pandemic, you want kind of a full spectrum one to to put your weakest player on is just asking for it to have that Trojan horse uh, phenomenon. And and basically what you're describing is it's not just the cost-benefit analysis on the micro, but as a public policy tool, yet temporarily for a few months, you'll have a cohort of people that are happier that they had it because they'll get better symptoms or, or, you know, fewer serious symptoms than they would have without it. But in the long run, they're, they're, they're touting this as the tool for getting your way out of the epidemic. And in fact, you're going to be chasing your tail. And then obviously coming full circle to the beginning of our discussion, this entire thing presupposes that there's no treatment, um, which is why, like, I, I was telling my audience from day one, to me, it made sense. Look, if you have the immunity, for sure not to push it on people. Um, if, you, if you're younger, at less risk not to do it. But certainly, if you're in the higher risk categories, I was like, look, you know, even if it does have a lot of side effects, much more so than we're used to, than we tolerate typically. But yeah, you know, kind of maybe it makes sense. But I don't know, Dr. Tyson, if I could even, if any of us could make that determination, because what would happen if we took everyone with diabetes um, and heart disease and prophylaxed and treated them immediately with this stuff? What would happen then? 
you know, that might be a better risk analysis, especially given that they themselves are admitting evidently this wears off quicker with immunocompromised. You're going to need a third shot, but the third shot is more of the same. It's kind of like last year's flu shot. It's not, you know, so you might not even get the six, five, six months of mileage off of the symptoms as the Israelis seem to be supposing. So then now you're assuming a new risk for, you know, blood clots and myocarditis and whatever else, each subsequent shot for a reducing return of benefit. So then, you know, this is my problem. I'm very pro-vaccine and I don't like, I'm not opposed to the idea, but when you censor the, the side effects, you upplay the benefits of it, ignore the risk of, you know, some sort of enhancement or perpetuation of the virus through mutation of that that viral immune escape, and then obfuscate early treatment, well, that's a horse of a different color. Well, I mean, it's just, it's negligence is what it is, because, I mean, the reality is, is you can't, you can't treat any infection with a vaccine. You don't treat infections with vaccines. If you get pneumonia, we don't treat it with the, the, the pneumovax. When you get meningitis, we don't treat it with the meningococcal vaccine. When you get chickenpox, we don't treat it with the varicella vax. Okay? When you get hepatitis, we don't treat it with the hepatitis vaccine. You treat it with antivirals. You treat it with antibiotics. You treat it with, with whatever's going on. You treat the symptoms. You see, that's the problem. Prevention is one thing, but when you can no longer prevent it from happening, then you have to go to treatment and prophylaxis. That's it. It's, it's plain and simple. And for people to completely ignore that concept is irresponsible, and, and it's downright just negligent. And these people should not be in public office if, if they're going to continue to uh, say that, oh, well, this is the only way out. This is the only way out. You can't. People are dying. They're getting infected. They need treatment options, period. And, and increasingly, they are going to be vaccinated as well. Like, if you're unvaccinated, I'm just telling you, they basically say you deserve to, to die. That's basically what I'm hearing. But what I say is, all right, they deserve to die. But there's plenty of vaccinated people. And, and I like the way you put it. This is a big danger, and I'm seeing this. I saw someone in West Virginia who died, and I'm sure he got no treatment because it's, hey, they're all telling me I'm not going to get bad symptoms, so I get a little cough and whatever, whereas – at the same time, they're telling us, and Fauci said this, that you're going to want to, I'm paraphrasing, but you're going to want to um, give the third dose to the immunocompromised before everyone else. He used the word before, which is an indication that he plans on pushing that on everyone, but first, the immunocompromised. So then you're admitting that it won't necessarily help them, even for the severe symptoms, and then you're just giving them this false sense of hope, and you're not bombing away at it with, you know, we're not even giving them a Pepsid. As, as Trump exactly. was given, <laughs> you know, yeah. the president I mean, of the United States. And, and that's the problem. And, and then, you know, then the third leg of all of these patients are those who have had COVID and have natural immunity. Nobody wants to talk about the reinfection rates. So if I tell you, okay, that the reinfection rate from COVID-19 is less than 1%, what would you tell me? Well, you're you're making people assume a needless risk, and and I'm sure you're aware there's three studies out mm-hmm. that show people that already have their systems primed by the spike because they had the virus are particularly more vulnerable to a greater number and severity um, of symptoms. A Manchester, UK Manchester study, a Mount Sinai study, 
there's a third one, another one from England. Um, it's it's irresponsible. And and Dr. Tyson, my fear is that in the South, you're going to have people. Let's say they were unvaccinated, they get the virus, they get it bad. They're going to have their tail between their legs. Oh man, I made a mistake, and they're going to go straight after, straight to get vaccinated when they're when they're days after getting the virus. And that's and that's what they're telling people. And again, that's that's another that's, that's complete malpractice. You know, I, I I don't understand where we lost the first do no harm, right? And and why they're not talking about natural immunity? Why again? Do I need a vaccine when I clearly have natural immunity? I've been exposed to thousands of patients, and guess what? I've yet to this day be reinfected. Okay. If you start telling me that there's a, you know, 20 to 30% reinfection rate, then we can reevaluate the need for a vaccine in that population. But, but, right but, but now, then again, clearly yeah. don't see it. But then again, Dr. Tyson, here's the deal. Am I not correct on the science that if you would have an eventuality that somehow your memory B cells in your bone marrow and your T cells that some studies have described have uh, stem cell-like properties... Uh, in Nature magazine published this. If you're telling me that's not going to cut it, is there any scenario where the vaccine would cut it? Then yeah, it would be at better. That point, I would say no. Right? Exactly. At that point, I would say no. And yeah, and, I mean, and that's I where... can't swear in a Bible that it's going to last forever. Um, it looks very promising, but if it doesn't, the vaccine sure as heck won't. Yeah, not at that point. Not at that point. Unbelievable. Well, thanks so much for your story. Where could people find out more about your um, protocols? Um, Peter's uh, protocol is published and it pretty much goes along with what, what we do on the American Academy of Physician and Surgeons. It's aapsonline.org. Uh, you can find the protocol there. There's a guide for outpatient treatment you can download. Uh, that's been one of the most useful uh, resources I could tell anyone because you can download the guide. You can take that to your doctor. You can discuss the treatment alternatives, and hopefully you can get your doctors to listen to you. Um, if not, you can go to myfreedoctor.com. You can go to speakwithanmd.com, uh, and you can even go to our uh, website in California, which is allvalleyurgentcare.com. Uh, and uh, we we do um, you know televisits and talk to people and give out prophylaxis all over uh, the state of California. Um, you know, do your own research. You know, I think MIT did the study and said that the most uh, quote vaccine evasive group in this country right now is the most educated, and I think it's because we're asking questions and we're not getting the answers that we we we, we want, um, and we need to keep asking those questions. Why is there still no early treatment? The answer, there is early treatment. You just have to look for it. Well, there might be treatment when uh, Pfizer and Merck come out with their $5,000 pop trucks. Um, but, it, but it won't be early. You'll probably have to be hospitalized to get it. So the hospital gets yeah. their cut. The drug companies get their cut. And we keep chasing our tail, waiting for the cytokine storm to come rather than avoiding it. Um, science is all about asking questions and you know, improving things. I know. And by the way, I don't want you guys to cut yourself short. I actually just found it. Folks, you could go to the desert review. It's a website. Dr. George Farid, Dr. Brian Tyson, share early treatment protocol. You could find exactly 
um, the protocol there. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Really looking forward to hearing from you again to share your success. Um, and, and good luck. God bless you for what you're doing. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, guys. And folks, we are way out of time till tomorrow. God bless you all. And thank you for listening. Thank you.